0: Well, good morning, afternoon, or evening, whatever time it is, brothers and sisters at Eden Chapel, thanks for joining me today. This is Ryan Hoffman. I'm a member here at the church, and it's my honor today to be asked to lead the devotion with you in Leviticus chapters 14 through 15. These are some pretty weighty chapters. Uh, They cover some pretty serious topics, to be honest, especially chapter 15, and trying to explain that and go into detail is not going to lie, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge here, but uh, I just want us to remember that everything that's included in God's word is there for our benefit, for our instruction, and ultimately to point us to Christ. So it's there in the chapter and we're going to go through it as best as we can and try to um, just understand what God is saying to us through that chapter. Reading through Leviticus, uh, it can feel like there's just so much there, so many instructions and rituals and things. And, you know, we see a lot of these ceremonial instructions in these chapters, a lot of these external things that God wanted the people of Israel to do. What we need to remember is that Ultimately, these things were to point out that they were unholy or unclean before a righteous, holy God. So for them, it was, to, it was to show them their need to be cleansed before a holy God. For us, ultimately, it is for us to look back at these uh, chapters and, and what was going on here as the same thing. This is, this is a picture of how unclean we are before God and how we need to be brought into a right relationship with him. And we can't do that on our own. Jesus ultimately is the one who offers himself for us as a perfect sacrifice and mediates on our behalf as our great high priest. So it helps us to read these chapters with that perfect ending in mind so we understand the true meaning of these texts. So continuing from chapter 13, where it's talking about how to determine someone has leprosy, chapter 14 is talking about how the priest goes through the process of cleansing the leper from his leprosy. We see that in order to do this, this has to be done so that the man can be brought back into covenant community with God the leper is brought before the priest for examination. If it's determined that he has leprosy, then there's this whole procedure. First, there have to be birds that are sacrificed. There's one of them is sacrificed. It's slain and its blood is applied to another bird, which is let go, kind of like a scapegoat. And then that blood gets applied to the leper, kind of as a way of like atonement, right? This is a way to cleanse the leper. And then after that, he's sprinkled with the blood. He's pronounced clean. He has to go through the whole process of washing his clothes, shaving off his hair, bathing in water and all that stuff. And he can be clean. He can come back into the camp, but then he has to go through another the process after seven days of washing, cleaning, shaving his hair. And then finally he's declared clean. At that point, there have to be some offerings made for him. On the eighth day, it says two male lambs without defect and a female lamb without defect are to be brought along with some flour, along with some oil. And then there's this whole system of offerings again. There's a sin offering, a grain offering, a burnt offering. All these things need to be done for the leper on his behalf. During the guilt offering, the lamb is slaughtered at the place of the sanctuary. And then the priest takes some of the blood and some of the oil, and he anoints the leper with it to make atonement on his behalf before the Lord. So it's like giving us this picture of the blood being used as this ceremonially, this thing that cleans the leper that makes atonement for him. And if he can't afford what is required for the offerings, he's allowed to bring a little bit less. He's allowed to substitute one of the lambs, I think, with turtle doves. And it's just, it's there for him if he doesn't have enough to bring for the offering. But he has to go through the whole process of the different offerings made for atonement and for sin offering and burn offering and everything. Now, verses 33 through 57 are talking about, in the future, when they finally get into the land of Canaan and they have their own houses and permanent dwellings, what to do when they find a mark of leprosy in their house. In verse 33, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, there seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. I wanted to focus on verse 34 because it says that God says, when I put a mark of leprosy in your house, and the question is why? You know, we often don't like to think of God as bringing disaster or plague, but we just saw in Exodus that God brought all those plagues on Egypt, and even the last plague, the death of the firstborn, that even applied to Israel as well. They had to put the blood on their doorposts for the death angel, to pass over them, right? That's the Passover. And then we also see in the Old Testament where God uses pagan nations and he brings them to conquer Israel and to bring them into captivity. And that's all done as a way to discipline them and to bring them back to him, to set their mind on him, right? I think here we have to remember that God is sovereign, that God uses secondary means. In this instance, he's saying, you know, when you're in the land, when you're disobeying and there's like this disobedience and you're turning away from me, when I put a mark of leprosy in your house, this is how you deal with it. And this is how you are brought back into a covenant relationship with me. So in these verses, we see that there's a whole process again for determining whether there's leprosy in the house. If there is, the priest has to examine whatever this is, you know, maybe it's mold or some type of disease that's found in the walls of the house. If it goes deeper than like the plaster, if it's found to be spread throughout the whole house, at some point, they eventually have to have the whole house torn down and then like thrown outside and they have to start over. But if they find that that mark of leprosy or whatever that is, it's only like surface deep and they're able to cleanse it. They go through the whole ritual. They can repair it with new stones and new plaster. Then again, the priest is able to go through a whole ceremony of declaring that house clean again. And then the people inside that house have to go through a ceremony as well to become considered clean again. They go through the whole rituals. They go through the ritual with the birds and everything. And then after that's done, atonement is made even for the house and then it's declared clean And the end of the chapter here says, This is the law for any case of leprous disease, for an itch, for leprous disease in a garment or in a house, and for a swelling or an eruption or a spot to show when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law for leprous disease. So that is chapter 14. And then moving on to chapter 15 is talking about laws about bodily discharges. So please bear with me. Uh, I'm going to do my best to try to keep this PG and not go into too much detail. Although, you know, when you read the Bible, it it is just right there. It's it's God's word. Uh, It goes into detail. But basically, this chapter is talking about instructions for like cleansing uh, bodily discharges. And this is, you know, all types of bodily fluids coming out of men and women. And ultimately, it's how to cleanse unhealthiness in men and women, right? So in verse 1 through 15, it's describing how to treat men who have discharge from their body. And that's going to include, you know, conditions where there's pus or discharge from possibly sexually transmitted diseases, other things like that. Just think of fluids that are coming out of the body, right? It says basically that, like, the discharge is unclean. Anything that comes into contact with the man or with that discharge is considered unclean. So they have to go through a whole process of bathing and then cleansing until evening. Anything that touches that man or that object becomes unclean. They have to go through a whole process of waiting until evening to be considered clean. And then there's a whole process of that. Once he's considered clean, once he's cleansed, he has to wait seven days, wash his clothes, bathe, and then he's considered clean. Again, he has to go through a whole process of sacrifice, turtle doves or pigeons. He has to go before the Lord, the tent of meeting, and then the priest sacrifices one of them as a sin offering and the other one for a burnt offering. Atonement is made by the priest on behalf of the man. That's kind of the prescription for declaring the man clean again after that discharge. So verses 16 through 18 talk about when a man has an emission. So I'll let you guys read that and determine what that's talking about. But essentially the same thing, you know, when he, when that happens, he has to bathe and remain unclean until evening. Anything touched by that is considered unclean, has to be washed and then remain unclean until the evening. And it talks about, you know, even after physical relations, both the man and the woman have to bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Uh, Verse 19 through 24, if a woman has a discharge, it's her time of the month and it's blood. She has to remain unclean in menstrual impurity for seven days, similar to the man. Everything that comes into contact with her in that period has to be washed and remain unclean until evening. And it says if a man lies with her during that period and it gets on him, then he's unclean for seven days, right? So it's covering all the bases here. Uh, 25 through 30. If a woman has a discharge and it's not her time of the month or it's a discharge beyond that period, it's to be treated as if she's still in her time of impurity and she's unclean. It's the same thing. Everything that comes into contact with her is considered unclean and then she has to bathe or the person affected by her has to bathe as well and be unclean until the evening. So the same thing as with the man, with these different scenarios, you know, the woman or the man, they have to count off seven days, they got to wash, and then they go to the priest, and then he offers one dove or pigeon for the sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering. And then the priest makes atonement on behalf of the woman before the Lord, and then she is declared clean again. So to wrap up chapter 15, it says, Thus shall you keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. And the last few verses here just kind of sum up the whole chapter again. It's telling us how the men and women can become considered clean again after they've gone through this whole process. So I know that was a lot to cover and go over, but I think that for us, when we read these chapters, we probably think, you know, how are they even able to follow all this? You know, we have trouble sometimes following simple stuff that our doctor tells us, right? It's like, there's so much in here for them to go through this whole process. And I think for us, we need to remember that it's included here for our benefit And none of this is there by accident. God has a purpose for this, right? Ultimately, I think it's showing us that we think that we're clean. We can approach God in our own strength, and our own presence. And God is saying, no, you, you need to be cleansed before you can come to me. So I think there are some things that we can look at for application here. First, in chapter 15, 31, again, God tells them the reason of all of this is so that the people will not die because of their uncleanness before God. Remember, his presence is coming down in their midst at the tent of meeting. And all this is to show them that they are not clean before him. They need to be clean so that they can go before him and be considered clean again. And this just shows them their sin. It shows them their lack and their need before a holy God. This shows us how serious he is about sin and how serious it is that God cannot be in the presence of sin or defilement because his pure holiness would destroy them. So this is not telling us that like, God would be corrupted by their sin. No, this is telling them that they would be destroyed by his holiness if they don't go through this process that he gives to them. For us, it is a picture of the consequence of our sin and how that can spread to corrupt other people. There's a commentary by Matthew Henry. He says that this signified the contagion of sin, the danger we are in of being polluted by conversing with those that are polluted and the need we have with the utmost circumspection to save ourselves from this untoward generation. So, you know, these conditions, it's kind of like a picture for us of our sin and how they can spread and and affect other people and corrupt them. So it's like, this is how their sin was dealt with. It's a picture to us of how we need to deal with our sin through confession and through forgiveness. This should point us to recall that Jesus is our true representative before God. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus is not corrupted by touching the lepers and by healing them, nor is he corrupted by the woman with the issue of blood who who reaches out and touches him for healing. He's not corrupted. Instead, he... Flows from Jesus to the afflicted, for he is God with us. Second, it's God's mercy and grace that he gives the people these instructions and rituals for cleansing in the first place. You know, there is kind of like a health aspect to it, that God was protecting them from infections and from infecting each other with diseases and sickness. But ultimately, the point of these rituals was for ceremonial cleansing. So the process of being declared clean again by God's representative, the priest, in this case, well, this allowed the unclean person to be able to come back into covenant community again and worship God without interruption. And this points us to the reality of justification and what it means to be justified. God declares his children righteous and justified, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done on our behalf. The priest is foreshadowing this in his role in making atonement for the unclean person and declaring them clean again. So the rituals that are performed and the animals that are sacrificed on behalf of the unclean person, for us, that points us to the work of Jesus being sacrificed as a perfect sacrifice for us in order to make us clean. And finally, for the Israelites who were given all of these instructions and rituals and things that God required of them, it pointed them to long for the promised one who would one day deliver them completely from sin, Jesus. It's also for our instruction when we look back at this, so we can see now the beauty of what God had accomplished in sending Jesus for us. Think of the weight of the system, right? All the blood, all the sacrifices, all the offerings are meant to point the people of God to look outside of themselves for the cure to their sin. They couldn't hope to do all of this perfectly. So God had even built into this sacrifices and offerings for accidental uncleanness and sin, right? It was all a reminder of his perfect standard of holiness and that at some point there had to be a perfect satisfaction of it. And of course, we know that Jesus is our great high priest. He's the mediator of a new covenant. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 is perfect to read after these chapters in Leviticus, as it shows us the meaning of the ceremonial cleansing, how it was meant to cleanse outwardly only, and how that Jesus offered himself unblemished to God once for all time for his people to clean them inwardly, finally and perfectly. So if you read Hebrews 9, through 28, it'll explain all of that. These rituals were copies and shadows of what Jesus was going to come and do perfectly once for all time. He is our final perfect atonement. And now for those who are in Jesus Christ, we don't need to adhere to these ceremonial rituals because Jesus has cleansed us perfectly. And through him, we are able to draw near to God with a clean and pure conscience. So praise God for that. That should give us so much joy that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice and that he has made atonement for us that is perfect and has no need to be offered again and again. Well, thank you for sticking with me, guys. I know that was a lot to cover, but I just want to remind us that we need to read the Old Testament with the end in mind that Jesus is the ultimate and final fulfillment of all these different rituals and ceremonies and promises. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, that you're holy so far beyond us in perfection and righteousness, and yet you made a way for us to come into your presence. You sent Jesus to be the greater ultimate sacrifice for us, to bring us near to you and into a right relationship with you. We thank you that Jesus is our great high priest, that he has cleansed us inwardly and perfectly, so that when you look upon us as your children, you don't see our sin, but you see your son and his righteousness. We thank you, Father, for showing us the death of our sin and how you made a way to forgive us and cleanse us from it in Jesus. We pray Pray that you would be with us today and that you would help us to walk in holiness, pursuing you in all things. We Thank you. And it's in Jesus name that we pray. Amen.